This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we were just talking about with Gord there, there's a lot going on with some wildfires around the province, in particular near Penticton. Wildfire there has destroyed one home and thousands of people are under evacuation alert. Let's get an update now from Global News reporter Nitu Garcha. Good morning, Nitu. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so where are you? I'm set up on the west side of Skaha Lake, so I'm across the water looking onto the mountainside. And it was pitch black even 25 minutes ago, and that is when you can really see where the flames are burning. And it appears that the fire has gone slightly towards the north, whereas yesterday the wind was coming from the north and pushing it south. So it just goes to show how volatile things are. Yesterday, winds were quite a bit calmer. Today, there was uh, some forecast indications that the winds will be picking up, and we're already feeling that on the west side of the lake. Some 40 firefighters stayed on the scene overnight, Simi, to try and prevent this fire from destroying any more properties. But unfortunately, one homeowner did get that devastating call after being evacuated on Tuesday the next day to learn that their single-family home up in the Heritage Hills development had been destroyed, and it's on a cul-de-sac. So those flames narrowly missed some of the neighboring homes. So tensions are high in this community, but there's a lot of trust, of course, in the crews who are working around the clock to try and prevent this fire from destroying Mm -hmm. any more properties. Um, And Simi, to give you an idea of the 3,700 properties that are on evacuation alert, that includes part of the industrial area of Penticton. Elsewhere, there's a bed and breakfast, there's a winery, there are orchards. So in some cases, people's livelihood and their homes are potentially going to be threatened by this fire. So a lot of people are just hoping that the rain that's in the forecast for tomorrow will mean good news for getting this out-of-control fire under control. Yeah. So is it how much of it is under control at this point? At this point, it's listed as being out of control by the BC Wildfire Service. Light is just come, the sun just came up now. So crews will be out to map it again and give us another update at about seven o'clock this morning. But unfortunately, based on anecdotally what we saw on the mountainside yesterday and what we're seeing today in terms of size and how much of the mountainside is uh, still torched and and burning as Mm -hmm. we speak, it seems about the same as what we saw yesterday. Are they expecting any relief kind of weather-wise in the next couple of days? They are. So unfortunately, today is not the day because there are some winds in the forecast, but tomorrow there is some rain that could... It could just miss Penticton, but it could also hit Penticton, and that would be a big help for crews here. And, of course, I mean, with the pandemic, there are added challenges to an already difficult situation. If those 3,700 properties that are on alert get upgraded to an order, there could potentially be thousands of people needing a place to stay. There's no vacancy in Penticton right now. It's a tourist hotspot. We're seeing a lot of Alberta, Saskatchewan, license plates. People are, are visiting and vacationing in this community right now. But the mayor says, thankfully, the community is home to one of the largest community 
Canadian convention centers outside of Vancouver. So it's all hands on deck in case they do have to house people in a physically distant way like they've never done before if things do right. go wrong today. All right, Nitu, thank you very much for the update. Anytime. That's Nitu Garchar, global news reporter in Penticton. She uh, told us they're watching and observing what is happening with this wildfire that is classified as out of control at this point. They do not have it contained. And that, of course, is the big concern. Hoping they can like, push it away from any more homes or any areas where there's you know buildings or anything like that before the weather catches, uh, catches up with them, hopefully in the next day or two. And then things will perhaps cool off and they'll get a little rain through there. But boy, did that fire ever ramp up quickly. And again, for people who are through there, they should probably register with their um, local authority, with the regional district, so that in case they do need to get out or they do need help, uh, the regional district knows where they are. You can find that information online there. And we'll keep you posted as well as to what's going on. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about real estate. We know the residential real estate market seems to be bouncing back in some quarters, but the story for commercial real estate is a bit more complex. Matt Pickin is the Managing Director and National Lead on Capital Markets with JLL Canada. They have a new report out that is painting not a great picture for some of the parts of the commercial real estate market here in Vancouver. So let's find out more. Matt, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Good morning. So how are things looking for the commercial real estate market in Vancouver? Well, look, without question, commercial real estate's been affected by COVID, but some sectors are doing better than others. You know, the apartment sector continues to shine. People need places to live, and they'll stop at nothing to ensure that their rents get paid and they're not evicted. And in Vancouver, I think it's about 85% of renters have made their payments to landlords. That's huge. Uh, the government has obviously stepped in and they're disallowing evictions and the CERB program is obviously helping those who qualify. And I think another shining spot is industrial. And if you're like me, you've probably been ordering a lot of stuff from Amazon and other online uh, e-tellers. And, you know, that, that's been huge. Big box centers have seen a lot of growth. Where we're seeing headwinds, obviously, is in the enclosed malls, hotels and seniors or retirement assets. Office, I think it's just too early to say. You can't write off office and think that people are going to work home forever. But post-COVID, it's going to look different. And I think overall things are less bad than they were in April and March. Right, because Vancouver has been a notoriously very tight market when it comes to commercial space, right? That has been a hot spot for in recent years. So are you saying it's still kind of shaking out right now? No, it's not. I mean, right now, I would say investors are taking a pause. There's a little bit of a, of a wait and see. Um, you know, I think that investors are looking for deals. And quite frankly, if you look at Vancouver and really all the other big markets in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, the ownership is awesome. Uh, it's institutions, it's REITs, it's pension funds. A lot of the pension funds that you and I and others uh, are buying into, like CPP. So you're just not seeing them forced to sell. You're not seeing blood in the streets. I think investors are sitting on the sidelines. They're waiting to see some distress, but they haven't yet seen it. So, you know, Vancouver was, was very hot. It was exceptional. It was one of the hottest yeah. markets in Canada, but things have, have slowed down, but they've slowed down everywhere. And you talked about the working from home, which everybody thought, okay, that's it. That's the end. Everybody's going to work from home, but it, it's not really like that, is it? A lot of places are planning on having workers go back to work. 
look, I'm, I'm in the office right now. I'm, I'm standing here, although I'm looking around. There's not many people here. I think that it is the summertime, and some people have taken advantage of that, but it, mm-hmm. it's too early to just write off office. Um, I think you think of the innovation and creativity that happens when you're sitting in the office or sitting in boardrooms. It's difficult to replicate that through Zoom. Uh, we've had a lot of Zoom calls, and I'm frankly sick of them. I'm doing more, more telephone calls. <laughs> so I, I think that office is it's too early to write it off. I think it will be back, and I think that the value that we're seeing in the REIT index, and that's the you know the public markets, uh, the ownership of real estate. It's it's too early to say where their valuations are at. They're way below their NAVs. They're not asset values, and I think there's some great buying opportunities in the REIT space. Right. It are I would guess employers are going to have to be more flexible because some people might want to continue working. What about sizes? Do you think like perhaps companies aren't going to use up as much space as they were using before? That's a great question, and, and that's a good point. I think some of the smaller, lesser capitalized companies, maybe they, uh, some of the venture capital has dried up, and they're seeing this as an opportunity to, to dump some of the space that they have. And, and you're seeing that. In Vancouver, there's about 350, 360,000 square feet of sublet space, office sublet space that have hit the market. And, and that's huge. But let's keep in mind, Vancouver was also extremely tight. So that represents an opportunity maybe for some new tenants to come in. And, and then look at the government. I mean, the government is actually de-densifying. So they're, they're taking on more office space. And instead of having a small square footage per employee, they're increasing it to take account of COVID and social distancing. Interesting. Okay. Is there a time then, do you think, for companies to kind of renegotiate here, Matt, as well? Like if perhaps they have taken off more square footage than they actually need? Well, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my life, my mouth right now because we are a, a real estate firm. We represent clients, uh, tenants, but we also represent landlords. I can tell you that some tenants have tried to renegotiate, have t- tried to take advantage. But again, considering the fact that the ownership base is so strong across Canada, a lot of the owners have just said, nope, you, you've uh, committed to this rent, you've committed to this term, and you have to pay. I think they are working well with some tenants, especially in the enclosed mall space, who have been suffering. I mean, you think about the, uh, the movie theaters, you think about the fitness centers, you think about the restaurants, right. and landlords are working with them. But there's also the mom-pop shops who have tried to renegotiate, but they didn't have strong balance sheets, and unfortunately, they're not going to be around uh, after COVID. All right. So it just sounds like we're still waiting for things to shake out in the commercial real estate market. I think so. I think it's too early, certainly, to write it off. There haven't been the transactions. But look, real estate is, it, it's a great hedge against inflation. It's cash flowing. It's tangible. It's, you know, I view it almost like gold. So I think there's some great buying opportunities. But again, Canada is really well positioned. We have good ownership. We have strong ownership, thoughtful people, and low vacancies coming into this. So I think, if, if anything, we were really well prepared to deal with COVID compared to some of the other countries. All right, Matt, thanks for your time. Take care. That is Matt Pickin, Managing Director and National Lead of Capital Markets at JLL Canada. They are a real estate company. As you heard him say, they work with both tenants and landlords and all sides of the issue and saying, you know what, jury's still out on how the commercial real estate market is doing, particularly in Vancouver, even though it seems like residential has really picked up. Some residential real estate markets in Canada saw the best July they have ever seen before. Now, I don't know if that's just pent-up demand, people deciding that I've waited long enough, I'm finally going to make the move. But certainly there was a lot of shifting and buying going on uh, in the month of July. But we'll see what happens downtown and in uh, commercial real estate spaces. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer had a very busy day yesterday running around trying to save some birds. So let's get the details on that. Hi, Nikki. 
<laughs> Hi, Simi. So yesterday, we're doing this show yesterday morning, and I hear this thud against the window. And I thought, oh, no, don't be a bird that hit the window. I love birds. So I went outside, and I found this little thing. And of course, you know, it's it's upside down, feet in the air, just Aww. this little, little sparrow. And I thought, oh, no. So I, I, you know, I lean down, and I look, and it's still it's still breathing. And I thought, okay, here we go. You know, I don't know if I'm going to turn this into like a mash operation room, but I'm thinking, here we go. It's still breathing. We still have life. So I managed to pick him up and I was going to put him into a little box for a while thinking, you know, maybe he was just a bit stunned. And he ended up kind of hopping up into my hand. And then I did the majority of the show yesterday morning with a bird perched on one hand <laughs> while you were talking on the radio. I'm trying to type with the other hand. But you know what? He, he flew away. Eventually, I think he just kind of recovered. And, you know, he was able to sort of shake it off. And then he flew off. And and that was that. So that was the the good, the, the very good news bird story related right. to yesterday. Why do but, I have a feeling there's another one coming? <laughs> Because it's me, Simmy. Of course, there's another weird bird story coming. So my brother gives me a call and he says, hey, funny story. I have a crow in my living room right now. You think you could help me out a little bit? Okay. And I I went, do I want to know how a crow ended up in your brother's (laughs) living room? So essentially the other day he was on a break from work came home, found this injured crow in his backyard, but thought, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to start messing around with nature. Right. I got to get back Wise. to work anyways. Well, yeah, we'll leave it. We'll see if, you know, if he's gone by the time I come back. But lo and behold, he came back, you know, several hours later and the crow was still there and he thought, okay, well, you know, now I can't just leave it overnight. So he ended up bringing the crow inside and in the morning he, you know, called some rescue organizations, but everyone's been so busy right now. He was having trouble getting a hold of, you know, anyone to talk to on the phone so he could take this bird in. Uh, ultimately, you know, another day passed and he built this whole tent in his living room for the crow. But he also learned, I guess, that crows are very light sensitive. So oh, he no. said that in the morning he went to turn the light on and the crow just freaked out. It's flapping its wings. It's freaking out. It's cawing at him. And he thought, oh, my God, oh, my God. So he ended up just spending about a day and a half in his bedroom while the crow took over <laughs> his living room. <laughs> oh, my God. No wonder he called you for help. Yeah, exactly. He called me from the bedroom. Help. There's a crow in the living room. He's taken over the place. I think he's going to make popcorn. He's watching TV. Help. He's moving in. So so I went to his place yesterday and ended up, you know, putting the crow in a towel and putting him in a box and I and I drove him out to the Wildlife Rescue Association in Burnaby and and they were great. You know, they ended up taking him and you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that he does okay. He, I hope he had so kind too. Of a, well, he had kind of a screwed up wing. He had sort of a screwed up foot. I don't know if his tail was a little screwed up as well. I, I'm not sure if he got hit by a car and then Aww, maybe sort of ended up in the, in the backyard that way. But uh, yeah, I, I feel bad for the little guy. I know they wake people up in the morning and they can be quite obnoxious, but I love crows. Well, I love, them, so, I, I love yeah. crows too, unless they're dive bombing me in the springtime. Then I'm a little <laughs> more apprehensive. Uh, but, so when you went out to the Wildlife Rescue Association then in Burnaby, how was it there? It was so busy. So I tried to call them as well. I couldn't get a hold of them. I, you know, I left a message and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to drive out there then and, and, and drop them off. And it was so busy. The poor woman who was working there, you know, she was trying to answer phones. She was trying to do what she was trying to do inside. She was trying to help me with this crow in a box. And I thought, okay, there's there's got to be a story here. So I ended up calling them back and saying, you know, hey, you know, I work for CKNW. Do you mind if I just ask you a bit about how the agency is doing you know, through the pandemic, I could tell that you guys are obviously really, really busy. And I spoke to Linda Baker. She's the co-executive director of the Wildlife Rescue Association. And she said, yeah, especially since the pandemic, it has been very busy. 
Yeah, so the summer is definitely our busy season. I should say spring and summer. So it starts mid-April and it will last till into September. That is normally our busy season because we have lots of baby birds coming in. This year, we definitely have seen another increase over last year. It's definitely busier. I think people are more out and about observing wildlife. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. are, you would think that with less traffic that perhaps there wouldn't be as many, you know, birds in trouble, but there are. I think it's more people, you know, being at home. They're not going into the office and they're spending more time in nature and they're able to observe wildlife more often. I mean, if you think about it, if, you know, you are at work for eight hours a day, at some point during the day, a bird hits the window, an hour later, a cat comes along to take it, you come home from work at the end of the day and you have no idea that any of this has even gone on. Like Sylvester and Tweety in my house, yes. (laughs) Now you're working from home and you're able to observe these things a little more often. Or, you know, you go out in nature and then you observe, you know, injured wildlife out there that perhaps you take in. So I think it's this change in our schedules that there hasn't necessarily been an increase or a a decrease in animals in need. It's just that humans are there to observe them a little bit. More. Okay. And so they must be a little overwhelmed then at the at the Wildlife Rescue Association. Yeah, so as you can imagine, I mean they're busy season matched up with the fact that more people are coming in to drop off, you know, animals or birds in need. They said that of course they're very strained. Their volunteer levels are coming back up again, but they have this financial need as well with additional expenses. Well, we definitely see an increase in expenses, of course, more animals to care for. Also, we had to increase our cleaning supplies, our cleaning frequency. Some supplies were hard to get, especially in the beginning. Prices were higher. We had to, like, go to other places to get supplies. It took a lot more time and energy. And so, yeah, we'll be definitely seeing an increase in expenses. Fortunately, we do have a great... A number of people that keep supporting us. So I hope throughout this whole pandemic, which is hard on everybody, they will continue to do so. I would hope so too, because I think a lot of people have a crow story or some kind of bird story of something happening in their yard. Oh, yeah. Please give us a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, especially if during the pandemic you have had to jump in and, you know, be like one of those vets that you see on TV, hope for wildlife and jump in <laughs> and, and rescue yeah, rescue an animal from your yard or something that you've seen. I'd love to hear the story. So, yeah, give us a shout, 604-331-BUZZ or a flood Simi's inbox with yes, emails as well. do that. Simi at CKNW.com. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The hearing in June was the most important one. I heard him admit to the crime and the rape. And now finally, the end of this trauma is here. He's a horrible man, and none of us have to worry about him anymore. That was just one of the many voices heard in court yesterday where the Golden State Killer, or otherwise known as Joseph James D'Angelo, sat in a California courtroom to hear all of the victim impact statements as part of his sentencing. He is one of America's most infamous serial killers operating mostly out of the spotlight. It was a long time before these cases were all connected and put together. It was between the years 1975 and 1986, finally caught decades and decades later. He has pleaded guilty to raping more than 50 women and murdering at least 13 people. Our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke with CBS crime reporter Paul Violas about what's happening in court. Paul, as you cover this story, what was it like for you to hear those very emotional victim impact statements yesterday? You know, I've I've been there personally for for many years and, and numerous occasions. So 
uh, I can tell you that it's by far one of the most emotionally driven moments that you could experience in a lifetime is to be in a courtroom and, and to listen to not just victims, but oftentimes victim survivors and the survivors of victims after they passed. And not only sharing the, what they went through, but, but looking at the individual, looking at the defendant and, and that interaction, I can tell you it's, to say it's a power-driven moment is, it would be a gross understatement. I heard one victim say that the most important moment for her, it's, it's not necessarily this, this sentencing that's happening now, but it was back in June when he said the words, I'm guilty, I did it. It just, I suppose, goes to show that the road to closure, if it can ever be achieved, is a very long road. It's a very complicated road. Right. You know what? I think the misnomer is that people think, the general public thinks that when they hear something like that, that the person has closure. And I can tell you, having worked violent crime the majority of my, of my life, that victims truly never get closure. They get portions of it, and then it comes back. There are emotional rewind buttons that they live with for the rest of their lives. And people like this not only destroy that individual, but they destroy everybody around them. They destroy families. And that's part of what you heard yesterday as well, about how this guy not just destroyed one individual in that family, but the entire family. And we're going to hear more of these victim impact statements until Thursday, correct? Correct. And I, and I think, too, the thing for, for listeners to understand is that this occurred back in the 70s when women, and I, I'm not, I, I won't address in Canada, but it, it, certainly in the United States, women in the United States were more victimized when they came forward on a rape charge than they were, they were re-victimized, than, than they were really listened to. So... What they went through then and what they're going through now, well, I mean, just, this is a lifetime of just tragedy and horror that it's so hard to describe unless you're in, in the middle of it or you're directly involved with it. When will we hear what the sentence is going to be for this monster? Victim impact statements wrap up on Thursday. When will we find out exactly what's going to happen to D'Angelo. It won't be long after that. You rest assured of that. Maybe a week. Uh, it, it won't be long after that. I mean, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty definite that what he's going to receive in the state of California is life without the possibility of parole um, because that's the maximum sentence that he can get in the state of California. So I don't think it's going to be much longer after the final witness statement, but the court in California is going to afford every single victim that's been on the docket to have their opportunity in their same court. So don't know how long that's going to take, but you know, God knows they deserve that time and the ability to confront this guy. And I know the world will be watching because so many people were able to emotionally connect with these victims and with this story, especially in more recent times, as the case became so much more highly publicized through books, through TV, through documentaries. And the world was initially shocked to even find out who the Golden State Killer was, the East Side Rapist, the original Night Stalker. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if there's a message out there for everybody, you know, there, I really, and I say this with, with the utmost of sincerity and passion behind it, is we need to take a look at this case and understand that, you know, people say, what's a bad guy look like? Well, you know what? There, there's no textbook definition. And, and this man who on the surface, looked like a regular guy, uh, by all definitions, right, that is, and, and was responsible for the most heinous kidnappings and tortures 
murders, rapes that you could possibly fathom. So if we take anything away from this, we cannot be too careful and we should never, ever be judging a book by its cover, ever, without question. That's CBS crime reporter Paul Violas talking with our Nikki Wright. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about border restrictions now. We've heard a lot about uh, COVID nineteen alerts on flights, right? You can go on to the BC Center for Disease Control website and see all the flight alerts that they have listed there. And I tell you, not a week goes by without me getting emails from people saying, "Why are we still even letting people come in?" on these flights. People are very concerned about that. Well, our next guest is part of an international research team that is actually looking at how border restrictions have impacted the spread of COVID-19. It's Kelly Lee, Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Kelly, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, there seems to be this school of thought, and I think it's very common among people, that, you know, if we shut things down, we can control this virus better. Is that the case? Well, it, in theory, but it's more difficult to in practice. And so what we're looking at really is the wide range of measures that can be taken at borders to, you know, stem the flow, manage the flow of people. It's not realistic to completely shut a border. I think people sometimes think it's like a door. You can just close it and lock it. It's more like a tap. So you can manage your border by opening or closing your tap and how much water comes through. So what you want to decide is, what people want to come need to come through, you know, and under what conditions. And that's more a, a better way, really, to think about border management. So by limiting the amount that even comes through, so by slowly closing the tap, does that have an impact on virus management? It seems to be under certain circumstances. So we're a quarter of the way through our project. So we're still trying to figure out under what conditions that uh, managing borders actually works. There's a lot of variation of what measures have been taken across countries and, you know, the timing and the context. So it's not a straightforward answer to say they work or they don't work. It seems uh, that the answer seems to be that they work under certain circumstances. So if there's certain geographical features of a country, the timing, um, the measures that are taken alongside border restrictions, you know, beyond the border restrictions, whether you're screening, testing, social distancing, all of those come into play. So it's not just you know, open or close border. It's right. what you do, how you manage that border. I'm thinking about New Zealand when you describe it like that. That's exactly what I was thinking as well. You know, it's a, it's a number of islands. Um, you can you can um, control the ports of entry in New Zealand, and they were very early on in their um, in their action. So it, this may explain why they've had lower uh, numbers of cases of COVID. Right, but when you look at this large land border between Canada and the United States. How do you think these two countries have done in terms of managing that and trying to control the flow of the virus? Yes, it's trickier for Canada. We have the longest undefended land border in the world with the world's COVID-19 epicenter. So we're really in a tricky situation in Canada. Uh, we've, I, I'm okay with keeping the border closed. I think that is the right decision by the government. Uh, as you know, we know the, the government in the U.S. is quite divided in how it's going to tackle this issue. And so what we need to do is really keep an eye on how the, the virus continues to spread uh, south of us. And we need to think about how we at the border um, continue to screen, test and contact trace people that are coming in. There, there's huge impacts of closing a border or, or, you know, sort of tightening the tap. 
on people's lives, on the economy, on trade, and so on. So we don't want to take those decisions lightly. So we're allowing certain people to come through. But we also have to continue to quarantine, to uh, screen very tightly, and and hopefully testing in future, because that certainly isn't being done at the moment in Canada. Right. So you talk about like limiting the tap. That's what we see happening then between the United States and Canada? Oh, yes. I mean, there's there's certain categories of people that can go in and out. The problem is that this, you know, it's about implementation. How are we enforcing these measures? So essential travel is supposed to be the, the category. But we know that people are still going off on holiday um, and, and then coming back and isolating or quarantine. But the problem is, is are we actually ensuring that they do this? You know, who's mm-hmm. screening these people coming in? And we know that there are cases being imported. So we have to look closely. If we're still seeing increases in cases being imported, we may have to tighten it up further at our border. People tend to think of border restrictions as meaning we're not going to let anybody from outside the country come here. But we forget that there's a lot of Canadians who are here who need to travel outside the country and come back. That's right. And a lot of the cases we're seeing imported are by Canadians who have traveled abroad, just as New Zealanders and Australians have done the same. So, you know, it's not about just non-Canadians coming in. And they have to travel out perhaps for a number of reasons, for essential work, for study, for visiting family. You know, there there, there are a number of categories yeah. that you can travel that are considered essential. So those, anyone really, we we, do, we shouldn't look at passports, we should just really look at you know, what we're doing to screen people, to ensure that they have support when they come in. Um, If they can't quarantine, I know the government is providing accommodation for that. So we really need to make sure that, um, you know, that we follow those rules very carefully. All right. Fascinating work you're doing there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Back to school is a huge issue right now, and there's a lot of people very apprehensive about that. And here's what we know, that no matter how much we try and no matter what we do, there is a likelihood that we will see some COVID-19 infections uh, once the school year gets underway. I mean, we could do a stellar job and we could do so much great work with the learning groups and all the safety precautions But statistically, it's probably impossible to avoid some kind of transmission when you have so many people kind of being uh, out there and interacting again. So the question is about kids in COVID-19. What happens when they get the virus and how likely are they to spread it? Are they silent spreaders? Do they feel the symptoms? Will we be able to recognize that? Well, Stephen Friedman is a professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at the University of Calgary. He's leading a team of researchers from all over the world who are trying to answer those questions. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning, Simi. This is a really, I would think, important work that you're doing right now. What have we learned about how kids get COVID-19? Yeah, well, you know, the pieces of the puzzle are slowly coming together from multiple different studies that have been 
publishing reports of uh, clinical features of children. And, you know, the good news that we consistently see is that, in general, children, even if infected and if they develop symptoms, tend to have very mild symptoms compared to what we've obviously become very aware of in the older adult population, for sure. Right. Do they spread? Are, like, do they, are they super spreaders? Do they spread it silently? How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, that is a more recent piece that we're really starting to see. It's not exactly a part of the study that we're working on now, but in general, the younger the child is, the less likely they are to spread the virus. We are starting to become more concerned that children over approximately 10 years of age may spread the virus with a similar likelihood of an adult. Um, that probably relates to the fact that they're aerosol, not aerosolizing, but they're creating more droplets than are the younger children. Um, in addition, their viral loads, the amount of virus in their um, uh, mucosal surfaces, their mouth, their nose, probably is very similar to what is seen in adults as well. However, the children under 10 um, seem to be at much lower likelihood of actually spreading the virus, even if they are infected. And many of those children are asymptomatic and likely probably have somewhat lower viral loads than the older children. Okay, that's so interesting then. Is that, do you think, a lot of what is forming the discussion right now about how to send kids safely back to school? Well, I, I think the discussions are being framed as much as it can be on the evidence, and obviously every province and jurisdiction has different uh, policies that are in place. But um, I think in general, yes, that principle is really important. Um, and But I think regardless of what the likelihood of spread is from an individual patient. We obviously don't want children spreading the virus. So I think schools are really contemplating and should be, how can we risk mitigate? And that's probably the most important thing that schools can do. And parents should also be thinking about how can we risk mitigate because that's the whole premise behind the public health measures that have been put in place in, in BC and in Alberta where I'm based and across the country that we know can be highly effective regardless of the situation, even amongst adults who are, you know, obviously very e- can easily spread the virus, it can be suppressed if we put appropriate measures in place. Okay. And what, what kind of appropriate measures? Well, you know, I think the, the most important thing in schools, obviously, that you've heard a lot about, I'm sure, is universal masking. So the more children are wearing masks, um, even in the younger age, even if they're at lower risk, that doesn't eliminate, I mean, there's no risk. So even the younger children can wear masks, and we really do support and endorse that. The other thing that, interestingly, I find school boards are not speaking about as much, or governments, is hand washing, hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. We, even if an individual were to spread droplets and put them on a surface, if a child were to put, pick it up on their hands, it doesn't actually cause infection until it reaches their face, their mouth, their nose, their eyes. So if they were to wash their hands, use hand sanitizer in that interim, you would then, once again, stop the chain of transmission. So I think it's really important that we make it easily accessible and become a routine that's being done very often. And the other thing about the face masks is they are also a preventer, meaning we know we touch our faces a lot during the day. So that actually acts as a barrier both to droplets getting out, but somewhat to us putting our hands to our mouth, especially the young children as well, hopefully. Um, And so really that's another really important thing. The other one that I think schools are contemplating, trying to figure out how to implement because it's more challenging than it is to say on paper is cohorting. So the less mingling there is, the Mm -hmm. less the children are interacting with other children, really important. But the other piece that parents need to really think about is what happens when the children are at home. So we can't expect risk mitigation to perfection at school, but then at home, be very lenient on how we behave. Right. That's a great point. Uh, Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
My pleasure. Thank you very much, and have a good day. You too. That's Stephen Friedman, Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at the University of Calgary. They're studying how kids spread COVID-19. Excellent point he said there at the end, right? We can't expect schools to be perfect and then not have us at home doing the very similar things to make sure that those same practices carry over. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're talking today about mandatory masks in school. They are being made mandatory for certain grades in certain places here in BC, and that may change, of course. But we just spoke to a researcher about how this should be, could be one of the pivotal things about getting kids back in school. So Education Minister Rob Fleming announced this week that students and staff will be required to wear masks in high traffic areas and on buses but it also leaves districts some room for interpretation and movement in there when it comes to implementing their own policies. So we wanted to talk about this now, and joining us is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown, of course, a mom herself, who is, I know, deeply involved in this topic. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Oh, it's the great debate, is it not? To wear a mask, to not wear a mask, or maybe something in between. Everybody seems to have an opinion on this. And, you know, I think everybody's opinions have to be respected and listened to. And I think that's what the education ministry is trying to do, Mm -hmm. you know, encompass everybody's feelings on this. But, yeah, very hot topic for sure. I was really taken by uh, something that you posted on social media this week because you were talking to your son who was in grade 10. And it feels like adults are talking about this, right, constantly. We're debating it and going back and forth. But kids seem more okay with this. They absolutely do. And and when you say parents are talking about it, I find that that is all parents are talking about right now. When you get together with your parent friends, uh, hockey friends, sports friends, etc. What comes up back to school and the wearing of masks? And as I say, everybody has an opinion. And when you say about my son, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to say to him, hey, what about a mask in school? What do you think about that? And he goes, oh, mom, like, come on, everybody should be wearing a mask at school. <coughs> See? Me. But I think, Simi, the reason for that, especially for our family, we have been wearing a mask since right. March. And it's it's just common practice for us. We have one in our pocket, our purse, in our vehicle. And when we go inside a, a mall, a grocery store, yeah. they automatically come out. We automatically put them on. So for my son going inside the school, hey, automatically wear a mask. But not a lot of people um, are, are thinking that way right now. I think maybe they're moving yeah. towards that. You know something, Simi, I talked to a doctor recently and I thought she made a very good point uh, about wearing masks. And she told me, um, and this is especially for parents with younger children, not maybe used to wearing masks. And she says there's only a few weeks to go until school begins again. She says, start now. Yes, thank you. Wearing masks. Let's practice getting the masks on our kids. And and that's maybe not for the younger kids, maybe for older children too. Get out the masks. And, and start practicing wearing them inside or wearing them in your vehicle or when you go into a store. And she says, in a few weeks' time, the children will be used to this. It will be normal for them. So when they go to school, it won't be scary. It won't be a shock. And I thought that was really, really, really good. good advice from a doctor. You know, I, I wanted to, I'm so glad you're on with us today, Janet, to talk about this because I've, I've been feeling that too. We just talked to a pediatrics professor who said something very similar, saying, we can't have the school system be this perfect perfect place and then not have people practicing the same things at home. So, you know, we expect the school system to have all the answers, 
But parents also have to pick up this pace here and make sure that you're following through on these things at home. And I'm not sure, like with all this debate, our parents need to ask themselves, am I doing enough at home to model that same good behavior that you want the school system to have? That is an excellent point to me. Everything comes from the top down, even in a family, from the top down. And whatever usually parents are doing, children usually tend to model what their parents do. So, you know, let's set a good example. Uh, a lot of people are wearing masks inside grocery stores, but you know what? There's also a lot who are not wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And if you want the school system to, to have your children wearing a mask, yeah, parents should be wearing masks now to show to the children it's not a big deal. Put it on, take it off when you get out. And let's get into the practice, as that doctor says, let's do this now so that everybody's used yes. to it. It. And I think, uh, you know, overall, it's a good idea. Why not? It, it can't hurt, right? Well, and also, I think it'll help relax kids. <clears throat> And, and you're a mom, you know how important that is. Like the new school year is already going to be stressful enough for kids. They haven't been in school for months. I think we all need to do what we can to help kids have less anxiety and stress about going back. And that means for parents, as you said, start getting them ready. Start modeling good behavior. Show them, listen, this is going to be fine as long as you remember to do X, Y, and Z. Like, what are you hearing from friends of yours? Oh, that's a whole other thing, Simi. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, you know, everybody, as I say, everybody has an opinion on this, right? And I actually have a, spoke to one parent in Surrey who, uh, who her 90 year old mother in law lives with them. So obviously, she's very concerned about safety going back to school and that sort of thing. So she's actually started a petition. And her goal right now is to get 7500 signatures. Uh, she says the government is pressuring students to go back to school without sufficient protection for the health of students. And she is spearheading this petition saying that right. everybody should be wearing masks to keep people safe. Um, I know of another parent who's reached out to me. She recently had a liver transplant last year. Oh my year. goodness, yeah. So, so clearly, she, you know, her children are going to school. She wants the wearing of masks just to give that extra layer of protection. Um, I'm also hearing the other side of things. People are saying, well, they don't want their children to wear masks. They say if it's safe to go back to school, it's safe not to wear a mask. That's their reasoning. Others say they want their children to wear a mask part of the time, saying it's too hot and too restrictive. Oh, boy. Um, but, but the question is, you know, what is part of the time? You know, and the other thing I'm hearing, too, from parents, and I think this is very interesting and important, uh, right now we're hearing from the education ministry that students have to wear masks in the high traffic areas of the schools, etc. But you know what kids are like? Let's face it. If, they, if they're taking them right. off and putting them on, they're going to be dropping them all over. Over the place. They're going to be losing them. Uh, parents are afraid that if that happens, that other children will say, hey, I've got an extra one, wear mine. Or, hey, I don't like wearing mine, wear mine. But and I, I, under I understand the concern around that too. Yeah, I know. But you're right, though. If we start modeling that behavior now at home and explaining all this important stuff to kids, you would hope that by the time they get to school, they would know. And you you know, you, you talk to your son about this. Kids are super adaptive, right? They're ahead of the curve most of the time on, on us adults. Well, I think if all the adults just sort of took a step back and chilled out and, and didn't make a big deal out of this, right? Just, you know, we're going into the store. Oh, don't forget to put on your mask. Don't don't get too hyped up over this, I think, right? That's the way I yeah. operate. Hey, just throw on your mask. Oh, you forgot to put on your mask. Um, Oh, you know, somebody over there is not wearing their mask. Oh, well, don't worry about it. That's their business. Just make but sure you, you wear yours. For yeah. Exactly. For us, we wear a mask. And it's become routine, as I say. And I think if everybody starts in now... 
putting on a yes. mask and practicing that. It's just like going to bed earlier a few weeks before school starts. You sort of get in the rhythm and the routine. Yes. Um, do the mask thing too. And I don't think it should be a big deal by the time school starts. That's just my opinion. No, I think that is excellent advice, Janet. And we're going to talk more about it. But listen, thank you very much. And good luck to your son in the new school year. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. Thank that, you very much. That's our Janet Brown, our CKW and Global News senior reporter there. Of course, reporter, also a mom. She's got a son going into grade 10. And when she talked to him about masks, he was like, yeah, mom, of course I'm going to wear a mask. Not a big deal. Everybody, all, all his friends wear masks. Sometimes we underestimate kids and their adaptability to this situation. So we are asking you this morning, do you think that masks should be mandatory for BC students as they get ready to head back to school? We're going to talk more about that next. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been tracking job postings during the pandemic just to see week after week if things are getting better out there economically. Are more businesses looking for employees? But now it looks like we've hit a two-week lull where job postings are still down, about 25% compared with the same time period last year. So let's talk more about that. Where have we stalled out? Which industries are being hit by this? Brendan Bernard joins us now, economist with Indeed.ca. Brendan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So, are you still are you seeing that slowness there in job postings? Yeah, that's right. So, so we, job postings bottomed in mid April and uh, and almost fifty percent from their twenty nineteen trend. And then through July, uh, there was a steady but incomplete recovery, sort of like we saw with the job numbers. However, so far in August, things have not that recovery has cooled, and so the trend that improvement in trend has slowed down and it's leaving us wondering, looking at other economic data, okay, has the reopening phase of the economy ended? And are we now in this more recuperation phase where the grind back to the top is going to be a bit tougher? Are we? Uh, I think we are. Uh, I, I think we saw in the July job numbers that that big pop from reopening that showed up in May and June just wasn't quite the same. Um, there was a lot of part-time jobs added, um, and, and, and there was improvement in hours worked as uh, as temporarily laid off people and people who are absent from their jobs uh, went back to work. But overall, though, the, the gain in full time employment that we really want to see uh, in, in the recovery wasn't wasn't quite there. And I, I think looking at some other data um, like uh, Google mobility data, for example, it, it suggests that, you know, that, that the quick. Uh, quick wins we got from the reopening uh, aren't going to be uh, quite as readily available going forward. Now, normally, if this were a quote-unquote normal year, what would we see happening, Brendan, in September? Does, do things shift from like part-time work to more full-time work? Um, g- generally, Q4 is a strong quarter for retail. Uh, you know, the, the holiday hiring season uh, really picks up, and so, so the retail sector picks up. Meanwhile, uh, usually... Your outdoor sectors uh, like construction and agriculture and, 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 and anything that, you know, requires people to do, do, to do work outside, understandably in Canada, those t- t- tend to slow down. And usually those two effects offset each other uh, somewhat. And, uh, and then it's January when everything falls down as retail joins uh, those other seasonal sectors. Yeah, there must be a lot of concern about that right now, looking at that retail sector, because a lot of those jobs still haven't fully come back to begin with. 
Yeah, the retail is actually doing better than the overall job market. So, um, so it, from from February to April, uh, total Canadian employment fell sixteen percent. Retail fell twenty percent, twenty percent. But as of July, uh, total Canadian employment was still about seven percent lower. Retail was actually five percent lower. So a stronger, so still down a bit, but a stronger back bounce back than the overall job market. And you can actually see that in some of the consumer spending numbers that the Canadian banks have been tracking uh, with, uh, with the debit and credit card customers. So th- there has been a bounce back I- I- in retail, not, not fully on, on, on the job side, but um, I, I think uh, long-term uh, th- this, the sector is going to face a challenge in right. terms of e-commerce um, uh, and, and retailers will, will still be moving product, but probably need uh, fewer employees to do so. All right, Brendan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's Brendan Bernard, economist with Indeed.ca, where they're tracking job postings, and they've been doing this every week uh, since the beginning of May. And they said, we're kind of, we've kind of hit a two-week lull here where it's not just going up and up and up with more you know, postings, more jobs available as, as they've been watching. But now we're down, he said, about 25% compared to the same time last year. So it kind of plateaued with the progress being made. Uh, and I think the holiday spending issue is going to be a big one over the next few months. Are people getting ready for all those holidays? Holidays where they spend money, the Halloween, Thanksgiving, the Christmas holiday. Is that all going to mean the same thing this year? Uh, so we'll have to wait and see what happens on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the return to school. It's very nerve-wracking for a lot of parents and teachers out there. And we're slowly getting more information about which school district is doing what. We've heard some of what Surrey is doing. Well, last night we got a better idea of what Vancouver is hoping to do as well. So the superintendent for the Vancouver School District joins us now. It's Suzanne Hoffman. Good morning and thank you for being here. No problem. Good morning, Simi. Can we run through kind of the basics of the plan then? How, how large are the groups going to be? And let's start with elementary school. Right. So in our elementary schools, we have been tasked with creating learning groups of no bigger than 60 in size. And we see trying to keep our classes as tight as possible and having them work as a learning group. And when they go back to school in September, there will be enhanced cleaning protocols, the hand washing, all of the uh, things that we did in the spring will continue, plus a few more. And the school schedule for elementary won't look a lot different than it did previously. It may have staggered start and end times. And again, that'll vary school to school based on the location, the size of the school. And do you know how large, like how many kids will be in a classroom? So what we will be doing next week is reaching out to families to uh, survey them to say, what are you thinking about coming back? Are you planning to come back? Um, or not, and if not, why not, so that we can understand where all of our families are. It's really important to us to begin to make connections with families and find out what they are doing. So we will follow in our elementary schools the class size limits, but again, uncertainty at this point in time as to how many will actually be returning. All right, so you can't make that decision yet, because I was wondering, you must be concerned then about being able to fit all these kids in while still having them somewhat distanced. Well, certainly, you know, we follow the provincial health officer guidelines and it is you know reducing physical contact but certainly we will endeavor to physically distance where we can and um, put measures in place to ensure that our students return safely to school because health and safety is our priority. Okay so we're still waiting to get more on that and what about drop off and pick up times? Again possibly staggered start times and end times it will vary school to school and we will let that operational detail come out once our plan 
is approved by the Ministry of Education. Okay. And what about high school students? So it's 60 learning groups of 60 for the elementary schools. What about high school? Uh, Learning groups of 120. And we have proposed a quarterly model where students would take two classes at a time um, with some flex time in the middle for uh, specialty programs or um, alternate programs or programs that would meet the needs of our special needs students or students with special needs. And we feel confident in the model that we are proposing that we can stay under the 120 learning group size in our secondary schools. Okay, so you feel like you may not actually hit that number. We feel we had to run a number of models to come up with the plan that we have at secondary school, and we are feeling really confident that we will be under the 120 in our secondary school. Okay, and what about the sanitization aspect and having the hand sanitizer and the hand washing? I know that the ministry made some money available for that, so will that will that be heightened as well at the schools? Certainly, it is our plan, and we did in the spring to have hand washing, hand washing or sanitizing uh, products available in all of our classrooms, as well in, as in other parts of the school where uh, sites determine that that is needed. But certainly, that will continue. We have ordered the supplies. They're ready to go as soon as we're back in school. Okay. And what about the actual class schedule then? And what form will that take? For elementary? For high school students. For high school, sorry. And perhaps, Simi, if I may, just take you through what it would look like for a student. Sure. I think that's the model um, has taken some time to develop. It's been done collaboratively with our administrators and our union groups. Um, But here's what a student would experience. So a student in grade 9 would come into school in the morning to take Social Studies 9. And they would be with half of their classmates during that time. And that would be face-to-face, and that would be for two weeks. They would then have the option, based on the school and the programs they choose to offer during their flex time, to take other courses, such as um, yearbook or a trades course or students with exceptional needs. So they may be in there for the morning class and this flex time block that each school will develop. And then they would go home. In the afternoon, that same student would then have the time to work on the second course that they are taking, um, potentially, and work on that remotely. And then in two weeks, it flips. So the class that you were doing online, you come in for face-to-face, and the class that you were in school for becomes a remote class. I think another really important feature, if I may, is every secondary school, we're asking them to create equity spaces. So for students that have limited access to Wi-Fi or technology, we will create safe spaces, physically distanced, supervised in school so that students may choose um, under strict guidelines to stay longer and actually accomplish their work in the school site. Okay. Are you you concerned at all about space in the high schools? Given um, that we have reduced the size of our classes, we feel confident that classroom space will be available and every school is going to be different because they vary in how much empty classroom space they have. But I'm confident in our administrators in our secondary schools will be able to work to use, maximize the space to make the plan work. Okay, so then to be clear, it sounds like you were hoping to adopt that two-course, 10-week semester. Absolutely, but it's a quarter because it's only two courses. So it is a 10-week quarter model, two classes at a time. Okay, all right. So is this the plan then that you'll be putting forward now to the, uh, to the ministry to get approval? It is. This is our proposal that will go in on Friday. Okay. You must be feeling an awful lot of questions from parents right now as well. There is a a great deal of anxiety and uncertainty about what school is going to look like. So we're pleased to be able to put out our initial thoughts on a proposal 
And what we are appreciative of is that we've really used uh, student choice as one of our drivers, particularly in our secondary schools. It's important to us to have students attend school every day. We want to maximize the instructional time, and we want to keep health and safety top of mind as we go through all of the details of the plan. Right. Will there be any option for any kind of hybridized forms of learning? Will Will some children be able to learn from home? Certainly in the secondary model, it is a hybrid model, right? Some face-to-face, some remote for your second class. So that is in place already. In the elementary school, our plan is adhering to the guidelines as they are currently set out, but certainly hearing from parents that they're looking for something a little bit different in the elementary model. So we have ongoing conversations with our colleagues in the Ministry of Education, and our board last night did pass a motion Uh, advocating for full funding and flexibility to create an elementary hybrid model. So those conversations are live and are ongoing. All right. And Suzanne, just on a final note then here, what can parents expect in terms of communication from their district, from their principals in the next couple of weeks? So we are looking, uh, once our plan hopefully gets approved next Wednesday, to begin communicating back out to our school communities to say, this is the plan is approved, who's coming back, If not, why not? How can we address the needs or the concerns? And we really need to do a good job of making sure we communicate in a multiplicity of ways with our parents, and that'll begin next week. All right, good to know. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you for your time, Simi. We appreciate that very much. Uh, Suzanne Hoffman, the superintendent of the Vancouver School District, explaining the models that they are going to be moving towards. And for parents out there, this is some more information, right? Another step. They are submitting this plan to the Ministry of Education and Ministry of Health to get approval. And so next week, parents will hopefully start to get more of their questions answered. They're going to survey parents, especially for elementary schools, to find out more of how this is all going to work. Uh, But again, more information coming from school districts, and that is a good thing right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.